Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. There was a tweet that was sent out yesterday. Uh, Councillor John Paul Danko, who we had on the show last night, we talked about this, uh, wrote this. Hamilton City Council voted to formally request our two local Ontario PC Party MPPs, Donna Skelly and Neil Lumsden, to appear before council to publicly answer questions about the disastrous impact of Bill 23 and related issues. Will they have the courage to answer to taxpayers? Well, we're going to find out. But I can tell you, Donna Skelly has the courage to answer to this show. So she is here now. Donna, how are you tonight? I'm good. How are you? I am great. Thank you. So the council has said they want you to come and appear and answer questions. Will you? Uh, well, I've said, first of all, it's interesting because I haven't heard from any of the councillors. Um, I think that uh, what you saw yesterday was pure theatre. That's not how governments operate. I did respond to a media request. Now, remember, I haven't heard from these councillors. The only councillor who reached out to me um, actually after he was elected was Councillor Spadafora, who said, I'd like to talk to you about this new bill. And this was just as we were introducing it. But the reality is, my door is open. Anyone knows if they want to reach me, they simply have to call, make an appointment, and we can chat about it. But it's unfortunate because this does nothing to to really build new homes, more homes in Hamilton. And I, it's an unfortunate way to, to work with different levels of government. And uh, the senior political figures around the table, especially people like Andrea, Mayor Horvath, and Ted McMeekin, who is the former Municipal Affairs and Housing Minister for the province of Ontario, and Brad Clark, another former minister, know that that's not the way governments uh, work and collaborate. And uh, it's just unfortunate that that's the tone that they wanted to set. Did So when you say that none of the councillors have reached out, did you hear anything official from a representative of council, from the city clerk, or from any, has anyone no. come to you and said, please come and speak to us? Just you and the reporter from the Hamilton Spectator. Okay. Uh, is this, do you, would you, I mean, if you heard from them, would you go and go to council? You and, I, and Neil can speak for himself, but would you go and answer their questions? No, but I would certainly invite them to my, if they have questions, come call me, meet me, and uh, come to my office and we can discuss this. This isn't a courtroom. Government officials don't appear before municipal councillors to, I think the wording in the motion was even stronger, something like account for our actions. Um, if if uh, Councillor Danko really is interested in, in understanding a bill that is absolutely necessary and one I fully support, and it's it's been passed, if he has questions, I, I'm really quite disappointed that he didn't pick up the phone and call. I mean, it's an interesting thing. It, um, practically, uh, at least um, procedurally is the better word. Is that okay to do? Can can a city councillor call no. an MPP oh, or does it have call. to be the mayor that has to call representing the council? Call a city, call, anybody can call me. I speak to councillors all the time, all the time over issues. I mean, it's, of course I would speak to, normally it's usually, it's the people that work within your own riding, but I absolutely talk to councillors all the time. We want to work forward on things, like, look, there's a, a project here, how can we work together to make this happen? Well, there's this fund, have you looked at this? Let's see if we can tap into a trillion grants or this grant or this grant. 
happens all the time. It's called collaboration, and it's what you should do. Different levels of government should work together. I mean, this uh, Bill 23 is, 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 is a bill that is absolutely necessary if we are serious about building homes. And, and just before the interview, uh, Scott, I went through the original platforms of every councillor, and every single councillor promised to address affordable housing, building more affordable housing, more social housing, every single one. And when a proposal comes forward to do just that, uh, this is the the pushback that we're receiving. And I just want to quote some of the counselors. Maureen Wilson, you know, we need all communities, all groups and governments to come together to address this urgent crisis. Brad Clark, we need to work with our senior government partners to support the creation of more affordable housing and purpose-built market rentals. Jeff Beatty, the affordable housing issue is happening behind closed doors. Young families are quietly living in their parents' basements because they can't afford to enter the property market. Ted McMeekin, governments at all levels can help set the stage with various policies, but when it comes to actually building more affordable units, our builders are the key. Mayor Horvath talks about increasing housing supply, overhaul, uh, overhauling development approvals in the management process. So every single councillor ran on a platform to provide more affordable housing, more social housing. And when we provide council with a tool to do just that, they get their backs up. I, I think, and look, they can speak for themselves. I don't want to interpret where their issue is with this, but I think one of the big issues is the development charges that the city will not have now, which is going to then have to be passed on to taxpayers. And they're saying this could be $25 million of revenue that they're not going to have. If you, you sat on city council, if you mm-hmm. were around the council horseshoe today and it was the the Kathleen Wynne government who had done this, and you were going to be handed a $25 million bill to pass on to your municipal taxpayers. Would you not have been upset about that? I would have been, but that's not what we're talking about. Again, I think the first thing I would have done is read the act and reach out to someone who could explain it in more detail. So let's just talk about real facts. The facts are this. The city of Hamilton, like all other municipalities, and I actually believe that this is the right thing to do, waived development charges all the time. If you look at there are pockets within the city, especially the downtown core, to incent developers to build towers, to build condo units, to build hotels, they will waive development charges. There are one or two or three developers who build most of the units downtown. They're not paying DCs because they wanted them to focus on the downtown. I don't hear anyone complaining about the DCs being waived there. When you're talking about affordable units, a not-for-profit, a group like, in fact, I've got quotes from um, um, just the um, Habitat for Humanity who embrace the fact that they are not going to have to pay a development charge for a home through Habitat for Humanity. People like Inwell, one of the best groups, I think, that can build uh, social housing, <clears throat> excuse me, won't have to pay a development charge. In terms of purpose-built rentals, we haven't had rental apartment buildings built probably since the 70s. If we don't give developers some incentive, they're not going to build them. And what we're saying is we will, and this all has to be done through legal work, so it's not as if they're not going to be tracked, but they will build these units and pay 20% 
less in development charges. In terms of new builds in subdivisions, semi-detached homes, townhouses, single detached homes, the full development charge remains. They will, the city will still collect those DCs. We're simply saying freeze them at the rate of the 2022 level. Scott, what's happening right now, and here's another thing. Our government, by the way, and if, if council had been serious about wanting to tackle a housing crisis and working collaboratively with other levels of government, they could have reached out because we have reached out to council and let them know we're willing to make you whole where you are losing development charges. But that's going to come hand-in-hand with an audit because we want to know where these municipalities are spending the money that they collect in development charges. So, so, so Donna, we have to run. Unfortunately, I wish we could talk a lot more about this, but just so I understand that last point, there is a chance that that $25 million or whatever the number is that whatever could be the lost is, to the Hamilton, to city of Hamilton, that could be recouped by the city of Hamilton? Absolutely. Absolutely. But... Why didn't they reach out? I mean, this, this letter was sent. I'm just looking at the day here. When did it go out? Uh, November 30th. Went to the big city mayor. They were told, we're going to be auditing some cities, but there is an opportunity to be made whole. We just need to know where the money is going. We're in the middle of a housing crisis. We need to know that the money is going to support housing and not to other pet projects that aren't a priority of our government at this point. We're not going to make the next generation of, of people bear the burden of everyone else by paying these unbelievable fees by municipalities, about 40% of the cost of a new house. So about $320,000 on an $800,000 townhouse right now is municipal fees. Think about it. The cost of that. So the infrastructure and everything else that it costs to get that, that, that unit built. It is, and we're um, saying it's got to stop, and we've got to let people get into the market. You and I did. We didn't pay those outrageous fees. Now we have to let the next generation have an opportunity to buy a home. I know that we'll be talking about this again. but I, I uh, Anytime. I, I absolutely appreciate you coming on here, and uh, that is uh, MPP Donna Skelly, Flamborough Glanbrook. I uh, really appreciate it. Thank you. Anytime. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Everybody knows around here, everybody knows what has happened with the housing market for a number of years. Things were goofy. The prices were going through the roof. Houses that in parts of Hamilton that not that long ago might have been a couple hundred thousand dollars selling for three, four, five times that amount. Million dollar homes, not out of the ordinary. And then all of a sudden interest rates start going up. And in the last year or so, we have seen the housing market cool and i think that's an understatement cool is um much much below what it has been well now rbc economics has put out a statement as of yesterday pointing to a number of markets in the country that are rebounding or that are whatever else one of the ones that says though that hamilton is still a market that has ground to a halt want to bring in Murtaza Hader from Toronto Metropolitan University joins us now. Thank you so much for the time today. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. So I I, and I think most people listening completely understand how the interest rate issue affected the housing market and why things have cooled off and why things may be bouncing back. 
What I'm a little puzzled by is that we are still an area that is seeing a large number of people trying to buy here, trying to move here, immigrating to here. Why would the Toronto market, the Southern Ontario market, the Hamilton market still be freezing cold when other places, even with the same interest rates, are not nearly as affected right now? I think the um, interest rates have affected housing markets all across Canada, uh, with some uh, not as drastic impacts in Alberta, especially Calgary, and uh, to an extent Edmonton. But across the eastern um, provinces, like and the like Ontario and and further to the east, um, the impact of uh, rapidly rising interest rates has been felt. Uh, more uh, uh, more in the number of sales um, than in uh, because the number of sales have declined by something like 40 50 percent year over year when you do the monthly comparisons uh, but not as as much for housing prices prices have declined and they may appear to have uh, um, sort of taken a pause in in the declining uh, but not to the same extent as we have seen a decline in housing sales activity. So um, I'm of the view that um, all across Canada, pretty much you, we have seen the the impact. Um, there are some places that are um, going to rebound faster than others, but we can discuss that. Well, and, and again, I, I sort of had thought, and this is my naive, you know, in, amateur hour on this one, I guess, but I had sort of thought that a place like Hamilton that had been in such demand and there still is such demand for housing that somehow that would have kept up even though the prices are very high because there is such a huge demand, but it seems not to have done that. Oh, yes. So let's look at Hamilton specifically. Um, its uh, location is its uh, second biggest advantage. The biggest advantage, of course, are its people. Um, but then if you look at the location being near uh, employment hubs like Toronto and its own um, significant employment within the uh, Hamilton uh, census subdivision, um, one could see it's an attractive place to be. Um, uh, it's near water, near all these things. And then you saw during COVID-19, how rapidly housing prices increased um, uh, at a much faster rate than the, in elsewhere in the uh, greater Golden Horseshoe. Um, and it's some, something that was also um, people so, uh, experienced in places like Windsor in Ontario. So now the question is when interest rates rise, why that, um, uh, that increase in prices didn't sustain? And the reality is that at the end of the day, it's not housing prices that we afford or try to afford. We try to afford the mortgage, monthly mortgage payment. And there's a big difference. Uh, housing prices can increase as, and we can still buy those homes because we are buying them on credit. As long as the monthly mortgage payments uh, that were much, much lower thanks to the um, uh, historically low uh, interest rates and mortgage rates in the past, that allowed people to buy expensive homes, but their mortgage payments were low. Now, prices have declined somewhat, in some cases more so than, than others. But because the interest rate and therefore the mortgage rates have increased significantly, it means that even if you're buying a cheaper home, your monthly mortgage payment is higher, if not higher, at least the same. And that is the reason why um, many households who were thinking of buying have taken a step back because the affordability comes from mortgage payments, not necessarily from the housing price. 
this this RBC report, which is very interesting, people could find it online if they want to read it. One of the uh, the places that it points to specifically as areas that are, as they describe it, ground to a halt right now: Vancouver, Fraser Valley, Toronto, Hamilton, Ottawa, Montreal, which. Uh, probably not coincidentally, we're also the places that saw the hugest price increases, as you talk about, over COVID. Does that mean that that whole COVID thing was an unsustainable, almost false bump in prices and it had to come down like this and those places were naturally going to return to their level at some point? Absolutely. What what the low interest rates give it, the highest high interest rate take it back. That's mm. how it works. It's a... Um, it is not possible for housing prices to continue rising 20%, 30% year over year. And therefore, and the natural thing to happen is that the pendulum will swing in the other direction and it, it has started to swing. Was that predictable though? Because a lot Absolutely. of people thought that this would go on forever. I better buy in now because the houses, housing prices and the demand is only ever going to go up. Could we have predicted this would have happened? Oh, yes. I mean, this is um, okay. So here's the thing. Um, I can predict that eventually we'll all die. That's that's a safe prediction. <laughs> true. I right. just can't tell you when. <laughs> so, so yeah. So was it predictable that housing prices will adjust? Yes. When? That's a multi-million dollar question. And anybody who can time it will be the one who will be making big bucks. But the reality is that uh, when wages are not rising at 10%, 20% per year, then housing prices cannot rise at the level and continue to sustain it. Reality is when house, when when the gov- when the central bank cut the interest rates down to almost zero at the beginning in the first quarter or so of 2020, um, some economists said that this will put housing markets on steroids because the cost of borrowing for most households, most borrowers came down so low that it would have been foolish not to enter into the housing market because at that low prices, it's almost free money. And people who bought those houses didn't make a mistake, even if they bought a house that now may have lost 100,000 or 200,000 in value, as long as you're not selling the house, that decline in value is only on, on, the, on the paper, you still have a very good house because when you negotiated a fixed five-year mortgage rate, at 1% or 1.4%, that kind of a deal will not come back most likely Mm. in the next year or two years or five years. So therefore, people made the right decision because your monthly mortgage payments, especially for those who have fixed mortgage, they have done the right thing to do. The question is, am I concerned that these uh, this lull in housing market or even a decline uh, will prevail or will, will be a long-term thing? And I, the answer is no. I don't think that will last because our population will continue to increase. The government is planning to bring in 1.4 million new immigrants between now and 2025 or in the next three years. At the same time, the government has issued about 450 to 500,000 study permits and uh, 450,000 last year, maybe 500,000 this year. So you've got about almost a half a million students coming to Canada every year. In addition to the immigrants, that's a sizable influx of individuals requiring housing. And the pace of construction, it hasn't taken up. It won't, given that the cost of borrowing has gone up so much that the builders will not be able to deliver on their planned uh, increase in housing supply. So supply will lag. 
demand will increase and 2024 2025 we'll see the prices will start to climb again um, and that is a likely scenario the question is what to do now and the cool thing to do now is not to panic and 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 try finding in, in um, uh, creative ways to be able to pay the mortgages given um, that many people will now be hitting the trigger rate and the trigger mm -hmm. rate is where the bank comes to you and say now you have to pay more well, I wish we could talk more about this. It's a fascinating thing just about how the just so many of the impacts on the market and how it affects it. Uh, Dr. Marteza Hayter, he's a professor of data science and real estate management at Toronto Metropolitan University. We always love having you on. Thanks for taking the time today. Always a pleasure. Thank you kindly. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Let me go to a guy who uh, I'm watching TV last night, watching a few minutes of the Raptors game, and there was a referee's challenge and the camera zooms in on the guy who's sitting behind the monitor, I, I guess telling the NBA referees how to do their job properly. That's the only expectation that I could uh, that I could think of. He is a, a sports commentator. He's an official. You can see him working at the Buffalo Bills games on the sidelines carrying the sticks. And I understand recently was at, at the at, as, as sort of the peak moment of his career was commentating on the Burlington Santa Claus Parade on television, I believe. Uh, Steve Foxcroft, how are you? You know, when I when Santa Claus went by, too, I was pretty excited, and I yelled out to him, Santa, I've been a good boy this year, like usual, and I have my list for you. And he, over the intercom, like he had a microphone, and he said, oh, ho, ho, I know you have, Steve. So I got pretty excited. That was, like you said, that was the pinnacle right there. I have, uh, when I was a kid, not recently, when I was a kid, three times growing up in Toronto, I was a participant in the Santa Claus parade back when uh, uh, when I was at that age. And the, the high point for me was I one year I was an upside down clown and that was... You know, that that was, Steve, that's like almost like commentating on it. That was riding the wave of celebrity. That really is. And did you get any television time while you were the upside down clown? Well, it's hard to tell because, first of all, uh, back then, I, I don't know that we had a way to record it at the time. It's a little bit back in the dark ages. And two... Um, I don't know if you know this, but when you're the upside down clown, your head is actually in the crotch of the pants. <laughs> so <laughs> see, seeing where you're going is not, not all that easy. And certainly seeing any TV cameras, you'd have to unzip the fly and be looking out, which would just be really weird looking. So that would be, yeah, that would get rid of the clown aspect of it for sure. That, yeah, that, that would be would creepy be, clown. Now, yeah. now you're into the world, the, the creepy world of clowns. Yeah. Uh, you know, I'm at that age where... I'm starting to run into, you mentioned I referee and be involved in that. I'm at the age now where I run into a lot of guys, and last night at the Raptor game was one of those occasions where a, a fellow by the name of Jonathan Daniel, Dr. Jonathan Daniel, he played at uh, Queens and St. of X University, Coach Konchalski out there, and I refed him, and we recognized one another, and his daughter... 13 years old, was singing the anthem last wow. night at you... the Raptor game, which was great. But I was telling her that, you know, your dad was a great player, he's super good, and all this kind of stuff. And, and I'm saying it in such a way that she has seen him play on tape. But you know what? He sort of looked at me and said, Steve, like, those at best would be on VHS. Yeah, yeah. You know, like what we just talked about. It's kind of hard to say it, and even if you have them, how can you play them? I, I have a high school basketball game of mine on beta. 
I don't even know that the, I don't know that there's a beta machine that exists in the planet yeah. anymore. Uh, by the way, did you say you refed him or wrecked him? I re- <laughs> I did ref. I refereed him. Okay. Yeah. Now, so, Coach Konchalski might argue that point. All right, i got a few things I want to get to here. Mm-hmm. I, I want to get to uh, money in baseball in just a second because it is uh, kind of unbelievable what's going on right now. But, you know, there was some breaking news today, not long before um, we came on the air, and uh, it was about Brittany Griner getting released from Russian prison after her marijuana oil possession, whatever the charge was. Um, this is a really interesting one. And one of the things that a lot of people have made a point of on Twitter today is, um, Brittany Griner a couple of years ago was someone who was very involved in the protests at NBA games and actually asked the WNBA not to play the national anthem before games and said, if you do play the national anthem, uh, don't expect me to be out there. I'll be in the dressing room. I'm not going to participate. I don't know if she ever took a knee, but she certainly, you know, was vocal about this. Mm-hmm. A lot of people on Twitter now saying, look, we the country has gone to bat for you. They've traded you for a guy called the Merchant of Death. When you come back and you play your first WNBA game, you darn well better be standing up at attention and singing loudly for this. Do you agree with that, or do you say, mm, you know what, no, if she comes back and doesn't participate in the anthem again, I'm totally okay with that? No, I'm 100% on the former. I think she should be one of the most patriotic people going, and there is a great deal of criticism with this move by the U.S. government as well, right, with the people that they left behind in favor of this athlete. And it's always just stuck in my craw a little bit about the elitism And, you know, you can say all you want that I packed it uh, inadvertently. I didn't mean to take the the vape cartridges over there and stuff like that. But, you know, if you're going to Russia, of all places, you better abide by it. And you don't make mistakes when you're going to Russia. So I think there was a little bit of elitism at times where you might have thought, well, I'm Brittany Griner. And that's always just stuck in my craw a little bit about this whole story. Yeah, I, yeah, no, I, I look, I, I, I don't believe that she should have received nine years in hard labor camps or whatever it is for what she got. I think the, the, the penalty was excessive and was intentionally excessive by the Russian court system for whatever that's worth. But no, it, it is certainly to your point. I think that, um, you know what, you, you better follow the laws of other countries, especially where you're in where relations with your own country and that country are not good because you don't want to get yourself into that situation. You open the door to problems. I think it was unfair what happened to her for the penalty, but you know, you can't put yourself in that position. It was a mistake nonetheless. So when she comes back now, what will the response be to the government, to her, to the WNBA, to every, if she doesn't, stand or sing or for the anthem or takes a knee or something, what do you think the response is? I think before the anthem, before she takes a stand that might be negatively viewed, I think the people that are at the WNBA games would be pro-Griner, pro-free Griner, and so on. So I think the reception will be glorious for her when she takes the court in warm-ups and when the game starts. Now, if she in turn 
um, takes a pro- uh, some sort of protest against the anthem and so on, then I think that opens the door again for criticism. Yeah, you know, and I don't I think really don't like that. I don't think the criticism would come in the arena because I agree with you. I think that the people mm-hmm. there will still be on her side. But I, I, it'll be really interesting to see if the WNBA, if someone from the league speaks to her, because I think the blowback would be enormous. I think the blowback would be outrageously enormous. No, maybe that's mm-hmm. the wrong word. Not outrageous. It, mm-hmm. Unbelievably enormous right. if after the government traded her for a guy who was selling weapons to kill Americans. And left someone else behind that probably might have been, you would argue, more deserving to be included. And we do know that the government asked for that person to be included, but the Russians said no. Yeah, no, so, it would be, I, I wonder, I truly wonder if these, if someone in the league office is going to pull her aside and say, look, I get where you were coming from before. I understand your protest before, but for the sake of our league, please don't do this. And you know, the sad part about that is how we're talking right now that someone from the league would have that conversation with her. Maybe. To me, that's disappointing because you would think she'd be up telling the league that. Like, hey, you know what? In the past, I've I've been this way about things, but here I am now. Thank you. I'm going to be the first one out there. I want to be front center for the anthem. Yeah, you, know, you kind of are disappointed that it wouldn't go that way. Well, and it might. I mean, she she mm-hmm. could she she could very well be telling her teammates, you know, like don't I, I I'm going to be participating in the anthem. So um, you know, don't be looking. And and I and honestly, I do think it would be a really smart move. I don't know when she's going to get her first game. I don't know whatever, but I think it would be a tremendously smart move on her part not to leave this as a mystery. Like come out ahead of time and say, you know, I've had my issues and I have my disagreements, but I will be standing for the anthem from now on or something like that. I, I don't think that it's maybe, maybe for ratings, it would be a big deal to not know it's the big mystery. What's Brittany Griner going to do? But I just, I, I think it would be very wise to come out ahead of time and get ahead of this. Do you think they're going to have a photo op at the White House? Yes, 100%. Yeah. 100%. You pointed out, Joe Biden, whether it was because the negotiations weren't good or whether Russia was unrelenting or whatever else, there is a Marine who is accused by this, by all accounts, of, you know, with trumped up charges, but there's a Marine who has been left there is still in prison. The, the, there is criticism, as you say, for the fact that Brittany Griner is the one coming home, not him. I'm, I'm happy that Brittany Griner came back. I don't want her to suffer in a prison, but right. she, I mean, she's, look, put it this way, even those who say she broke the law, true, but she has done enough time for what she was convicted of doing by far. But you don't think Joe Biden is going to try and squeeze every single drop out of this thing because of he wants to balance off any kind of criticism? 100%. But yeah. but we go back to the point. If Brittany Griner was to go to her first game back and in the eyes of a lot of people disrespect the anthem, does that not also spew all kinds of dirt onto Joe Biden? Right. It almost is egg on its face at that point. Would it not be? Yeah, I would think, absolutely. Yeah. I would think it would be. Mm-hmm. All right, let's. Um, that was that was what was going on today. But something else that's been going on this week, and I wanted to ask you about this because 
Steve, you and I are both, uh, we both love sports. We both love watching professionals do things they do. They play, they do things that you and I can't do and everyone else listening can't do. And they are remarkable at what they do. However, even with that, when I see this off season in the last few days, Aaron Judge sign a contract to play baseball for $360 million U.S. million. Trey Turner get a contract for $300 million. Xander Bogarts yesterday or today getting a contract for $280 million. Jacob DeGrom for five years for $185 million. Edwin Diaz, a relief pitcher for $102 million. Justin Verlander, $87 million for two years. Um, like it just, you go down and I'm only, I'm stopping there because there's so many others. There is a point, Steve. And I, and I, there is a point to me that even I am looking at this and saying, you know, I'm getting a little, actually more than a little uncomfortable with this. This is, this is obscene. You know, it really is obscene. And then the first thing you hear about from a lot of people when some of these contracts are signed is how the last three or four years of the contract will be so grossly overpaid, you wonder if the player will even be playing on the team at that point, too. So it is. It's 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 gross. It is gross. And the only thing I can compare it to is, in real life for us all, how the, in the last few years, how the home prices have gone yes. skyrocketing, too. And I've almost got the same feeling. Yeah, and 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 like, look, I'm not po- I'm not wanting just to pick on athletes. Although the athletes do get pointed at most often. Well, the two that get picked on are athletes and uh, business executives. Uh, I, I'm always amazed how those two have somehow become the the bad ones because you know I, I can assure you that when Taylor Swift goes on tour, she's going to make more than any one of these baseball players. Mm-hmm. Um, nonetheless, nonetheless. I, I got an email, uh, a text earlier when we said we were going to be talking about this from Russ, and Russ brings up a very good point. He goes, would you prefer that the money just go into the pockets of the owners? And it's a very, very good point because there's that much money involved. But my answer is no. Why must it be one or the other? If everybody took a pill and said, you know what, we are going to reduce ticket prices so I could take my family to a game and not have to sell a essential organ onto the black market to pay for it, what, what, what would be wrong with rather than everyone having to spend $500 for a day at a baseball game if we knocked it down to, we can go have tickets, buy hot dogs, and get a hat for your kid for 100 bucks, and everyone just steps back a little. What would be wrong with that? Wouldn't it be great? Like sports inflation is is killing the the industry of people wanting to go and have fun. The old go out to the ballpark and so on. And like you say, you could open up the market of more people being able to go in person to a game. And and you, you hit it right on the head when you say, oh, it's not really lining the owner's pocket. It would be to stop that sports inflation of the ticket prices. The owners don't necessarily need to line their pockets. Right, ticket prices don't need to escalate. Concession prices, parking prices don't need to escalate as much, too. Do you remember when the Blue Jays started and you could go out into the grandstand for like two bucks? Two dollars. It was Dominion two dollar tickets. Yeah. Yeah, at Exhibition Stadium. I was I was there a bunch of times for that. My son right now is at the Leaf game. Now he didn't buy Leaf tickets because our family. 
uh, doesn't own a diamond mine, but <laughs> he was given he were his company. Somebody gave the company some tickets, and so he was one of the ones who was lucky enough to be able to go. But mm-hmm. I said to him, even while you're there, you know, maybe what you want to do is get something to eat before you go into the arena, because yeah. even just buying a hot dog and a beer is going to be thirty bucks. That's like you just, I, I shake my head at this, but somehow the players have to be paid. Somehow the players have to be paid. The owners have to make their profits. The You have to pay for all the stuff, but it's just. And, the, and parking alone, like parking. you took the train or went with some buddies or something like that, but parking, I park for $40 and walk past the next sign that says $50. Uh-huh. Like it's crazy. And I feel, game. I feel badly. Because as a father, I've this is something my dad once a year. My dad had a friend who had season tickets, and they were great season tickets. They were gold seats at Maple Leaf Gardens in the front row, not the ones on the rail, but the first one back in the boxes. And so every year, through his friend, we were able to buy a pair of tickets and go to one game. I get every year I got to choose ahead of the year because the the guy owned the company who had the tickets, and he was very good friends. And so we got to pick our game before anyone else got it. So every year I got to pick a great game. Those tickets recently, you know, in the last year or two, when my dad was still here, we were talking about going to those things. They were those front row gold tickets when Harold Ballard was alive for all the knock against Harold Ballard. He did tons of stuff that was ridiculous. They were like $35. Wow. So we could go, so you could go to a game and have really good seats and it was, you know, $35 $35 in those days in the 1970s, 1980s. Okay. So maybe that's a hundred dollars now, but it was still, you know, you could still do it. The average person could still do it. And so I got to go to games with my dad. I've never taken my son to a leaf game, A, cause we can't get the tickets and B, because I, I don't, I don't, I can't afford to go. And if we could, it would be in the last row. So we're better just to watch yeah. it on TV. It's hard to justify it. And yeah, and TVs have come a long way too. The home experience is much better as well. And you know, here's the other thing with that is if your team ever becomes good and you really, really want to go for the in arena excitement, if you have to buy playoff tickets, the 16 home games at the most that you would have to buy for say four rounds, four home games each. If well, you're if you're a Leaf fan, seat. if you're a Leaf fan, the four games may be most. <laughs> yeah, well, if you're a Leaf fan, yes. But if you ever are good where you do that, the those 16 games are equal in price to the 40 regular season games that you've just shelled out at and mortgaged your future to do it. And you don't realize that, oh no, if my team is good and makes the playoffs, I got to come up with this same amount of money again for the playoff game. It's uh, as I say, I, I understand. Uh, I understand what's going on right now, and I understand. I'm not so naive that I don't that I actually believe that owners and everyone else are going to drop ticket prices ever. This is this is one of those things that it doesn't go down. Although, Steve, I do think that there may come a point. I don't know what might happen, but there may come a point when the sports business market just crashes and it, you know, something happens, but nonetheless, it's not going to go down, but boy, you wish that it could, you wish that you could go to a number of games a year or that the person who is not super wealthy could actually go to see a game now and then I, it's, it's, a, you wonder too, will stadiums be like 30,000, 40,000 instead of 70 and 80,000 because of that? 
Well, I mean, one example of that kind of thinking, and we got to go here in a second, one example is Disney World in recent years has jacked up their prices so high, and one of the excuses, and I'll say excuses, I won't say explanations, one of the excuses is there is such demand that the only way we can keep our crowds down so that people can have a better experience without as many lines is to make the tickets so expensive that not everybody can get in. Yeah. Well, you know what happens with that? And I've, I've argued this with that particular case. For generations, people have taken their kids to Disney World. When you now can't do that, you cut that cycle and Disney World stops becoming the thing that you then want to take your kid to because you never went. So it may be great right now. It may be terrific right now because everyone is paying these fees and you're still making lots of dough. But what happens a generation from now when there's not that emotional connection to it anymore? And I've said that about things. It's a it's a generation. It'll take 20 or 30 years. You don't think it'll happen, but it'll take 20 or 30 years, and it definitely will. Steve, what happened with the blackouts in the CFL? In, that, in the 1970s and 80s, yeah. you lost at least a generation of fans who weren't connected to the league anymore. You assumed, oh, it'll always be there. And, and there the were... NFL was close behind yep. it. There's dumb blackout rule. Yep. And a 48-hour in advance sellout. It's, 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 you run a huge risk. And I really wonder if there comes a point when like you've got 81 home games in a baseball season, Mm -hmm. uh, you would like to think that anyone who's interested in going to a game should be able to go to a game. And yet with the prices, the way they're going and with the salaries, the way they're going and everything else, there is coming a day when there's an awful lot of people who will never go to a live baseball game. And I'm like you, a huge sports fan, but the day of reckoning that way from the business side of it, it's, it's probably closer than we think. It is. Uh, ben, ben was just whispering th- in my headphones here that he's never been to a live baseball game. Um, huh. You know, it's uh, those $2 Tuesdays, or not $2, those $2 games, $2 Tuesdays with the theater, same thing. Those $2 right. games, though, in the bleachers, you could go with your buddies when you were in high school and you could afford it, and you became engaged, and you became yeah. a fan for life. Now, those bleacher seats are probably 70 or 80 bucks, and I don't know how many high school kids are making enough money working at McDonald's when they also have to pay off their future university fees and everything else to be able yeah. to go to a game. I I think it's a horrible mistake, and so Aaron Judge, you know, he's going to get his $360 million, and Trey Turner is going to get his $300 million, and in a year or two, Vlad Guerrero will get his $300 million. Mm-hmm. But I believe there's coming a day when there's going to be a price to pay for that. You got it, and I hope your son doesn't come home from the Leaf game tonight and say, "Dad, it was great. I want to go again." <laughs> well, I'll tell him that's fine. You just work 400 extra overtime hours, and you might be able to afford a parking pass. Uh, hey, before I let you go, you and I talked several weeks ago, a month or two ago, about how there was a curse of Buffalo athletes and Buffalo sports fans. And look at that. Vaughn Miller, their big free agent signing, the guy that was going to take him to the Super Bowl, out for the year. It is, the Buffalo sports fan is, it's burned into their DNA that only bad things can happen. One step forward, two steps back. Paige Thompson scores five goals, Vaughn Miller out for the year. (laughs) And you watch Tage Thompson, who's a member of the Buffalo Sabres. You watch tomorrow night, he'll pull his groin and be out for the rest of the season, too. I'm crossing my fingers he doesn't. (laughs) Steve Foxcroft, thanks for doing this. Great to catch up. Talk to you soon. (laughs) 
The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML. The Scott Radley Show podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening, and do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode. And also, be sure you rate us and review us. Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening.